This morning we're moving into Matthew 25, 26, 27, 28. We're going to be wrapping up Matthew. Matthew 25, as Jesus winds down his Olivet Discourse, it's called Olivet Discourse, of course, because he's on the Mount of Olives giving his last teaching to his disciples before he faces the cross. And beginning in Matthew 25, Jesus kind of goes into a practical mode, practical part of his teaching with a few parables. It's kind of the application from what we've heard him say in Matthew 24, what should be our attitudes now? What should we do? How, how we sh- should we respond to what he has said? And this particular parable is a warning parable. This is actually the first of three warning parables in this section of the sermon. In the early part of his teaching, he gave us the signs of the second coming. And now in the light of that, he warns the world to be ready for when he appears. In the first parable, he's talking specifically to the Jewish nation. It's about the bridegroom coming for his bride and those with his bride. The original bride was was God's chosen people, the, the people of Israel. Jesus then expanded it to the Gentiles, to us, to the church, and, and we're, we're known as a bride of Christ. But the focus of his second coming, and all of his teaching here in these two chapters, in the context of Matthew 24, is Israel, 24 and 25, because a church will already have been what? Already been raptured. In the second parable, he addresses us as individuals in the parable of the talents, the accountability for our personal actions and our responsibilities. And in the final section, he warns the nation, nations as a whole, focusing on every man and woman in the world. Now, as you remember, the disciples had asked him, when will all this happen? When is he going to establish his kingdom? And they were expecting it within weeks, perhaps. At the end of chapter 24, he told them four times, but about that day or hour, no one knows. But when it does happen, it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be unexpected. This parable is a parable with the intent of teaching us, or to illustrate for us, the suddenness and the unexpectedness of the coming of the Lord, which... Therefore, should call us to prepare ourselves so that we are ready, so that we're not caught in that unexpected moment, unprepared for His coming. Now, last week we said that in order to be prepared, we need to be alert, watching for the signs. We need to be ready, expecting His return. And we need to be faithful, being about the Master's business, being about being obedient to doing what God has asked us to do and keeping our lives right with Him. So let's take a look in Matthew chapter 25. If you want to turn for that, we're going to look at our passage this morning, the first 13 verses. Matthew chapter 25, 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took took oil in jars along with their lamps. 
The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go, go to those who sell and buy some for yourselves. But that, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or hour. In verse 1, Jesus starts out by saying, at that time. What time? What time is he talking about? Well, as he tells this parable, he's keeping the minds of his disciples, and therefore us, focused on the time of his second coming. That's the context. That's what he's talking about. The second coming of Christ. The time when he's go- he comes to reward the faithful servant and to punish the unfaithful servant. And why is he re- reiterating the need to be prepared, to be alert, to be watchful, to be faithful? Well, because the first time he came, they weren't ready. They were, and they were actually looking for him. They were expecting him. They were anticipating him. The prophets have very clearly marked out the signs to look for. They said there would be a forerunner, and there was. They had identified him as a voice crying in the wilderness. That's exactly what John the Baptist did. They said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was. Born of a virgin. He was. In the line of David. He was. They said he would come to Galilee. He did. They said he would have great power. He had it. But the world still was not prepared and not ready and did not listen. John said in 1 John 1.11, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. How sad. And as we saw at the end of Matthew 23, his, uh, Jesus' heart was broken over Israel when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You weren't prepared. You weren't ready. If you had only known what time it was, if you had only known that I was actually here. And now it's too late. And these parables that we're going to be looking at over the next couple Sundays here warns the world not to let that happen again. Because this time, there will be no second chances. Now the theme of the parable is actually very simple. The parable is is meant to teach us that Jesus is coming. That He's coming to judge sinners and reward the righteous. That he's coming in a sudden and unexpected moment and everybody should be prepared. And afterward, there will be no second chances. People may knock all they want, but the door will be shut. The day of opportunity will have come and gone forever. We're going to look at four things this morning as we go through this parable. We're going to take a look at the wedding. We're going to take a look at the bridesmaids. We're going to take a look at the bridegroom. And then we're going to take a look at the warning. Now, first of all, the setting is the wedding. Now, it's gonna, it's, it would be, have been an example of a very typical wedding in the time of Jesus, a typical Israel, in a typical Israel town or at that time. A wedding was the greatest event. 
Uh, that could happen in a small village, in a small town, the greatest single social celebration. Everybody wanted to be a part of it. Everybody was ex- excited for the couple. Everybody got involved, friends, family, extended family, everybody. It was a time of happiness. It was a time of, of festivity. It was a time of celebration. And that's, and that's a scene that Jesus is painting here for us in this parable. Now, it's important for us to know that in a Jewish wedding, there were actually three elements. First of all, uh, there was the engagement. Now, long before this scene that Jesus is describing took place, there would have had to have been an engagement. And the engagement was an official contract between the two fathers. Not between guy and gal. It was between the two fathers. The fathers who were giving their daughter and son to each other. So the engagements weren't really made with a couple. They were made with the fathers. And a little while after that, there would be what was called the second phase of the marriage, which is the betrothal. So there's the engagement, then there's the betrothal. The betrothal was actually the official ceremony. The couple would come together before friends and family, and they would make vows and covenants and, and uh, binding promises. And that's what we do in what we would typically call our wedding uh, ceremony. They had an actual marriage ceremony at that time, and they made their commitments. They, they were then officially married from that point. And any breaking of the betrothal period would be considered a divorce. They'd actually have to go through a divorce at that point because it was that binding. And if the husband happened to die before, uh, before the, the, the couple actually came together during that period, the wife would actually be considered a widow. And even though the marriage had not been physically consummated, nor had they begun living together, that's the situation that was presented. So after the ceremony and promises, there would be up to a year for the young man to get things ready to take the bride to, back to his home and be his own. He had to provide a place for her, which would include um, finding a place to live, whether it's renting or buying a, a, a small home, perhaps purchasing a field and start cultivating it to show that he can take care of his wife and children that would be coming along. There wouldn't be any actual ceremony for that. And that was, at the end of that, that would be the official wedding celebration. After the betrothal, after that year-long period, there was a wedding celebration. No actual ceremony. And that's the third phase, and that's what we see here in our passage. This is what Jesus is talking about, the wedding celebration. Now, the bride had been waiting all this time for the groom to prepare everything. And as the date approached, you can imagine the anticipation and the excitement that was building for that time when they would finally come together. The day had finally arrived, and she's waiting there with her bridesmaids at her home, and he arrives with all the men uh, with him. And they, they come in the evening to get the bride and the, and the men uh, and the maids, and they all go with torches uh, blazing through the town, marching, celebrating, singing, talking, laughing as they head towards the home that he had prepared. Everything's ready. Now he's going to get her and take her to that place. And when they arrive at his home that night, the wedding party would go into the house and celebrate up to seven days. It was a celebration. And at the end of that period of celebration, the friend of the bridegroom, kind of like the best man, would take the hand of the bride and the hand of the groom, place them together, and then everybody would finally leave (laughs) so the couple could finally be together alone. 
I mean, after all, enough is enough, right? And so it would be an amazing event that everyone wanted to be at. Now, a second thing we need to note to understand this parable and uh, think about are the bridesmaids that Jesus talks about here. Verse 1 says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. It says ten virgins took their lamps. Now, we're actually talking about torches. They're not like little oil lamps that we think of. They're actually torches. Um, the same word used in John chapter 18, verse 3, to describe the torches that the soldiers brought to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane when they arrested Jesus. So here are ten virgins, her bridesmaids, who take their, their torches. Um, they, they were kind of like long wooden poles. You've got the picture probably. A mesh on, on top, and there's cloth inside, and they'd have a little bottle of oil, and they'd soak the rag, and then they would light it, and the oil would keep the rag burning bright uh, as, as they marched through town. So these ten virgins, her bridesmaids, uh, take their torches and are probably going to the house of the bride, probably during the daytime, so they're, so they're not, not lit, and they're, waiting, they're going to the, there to wait for the bridegroom. They are her chosen ladies. Now the word used here for virgin, parthenos, actually means an unmarried girl who is a virgin. And it's, that's actually a very uh, good translation. They were young in those days when they got married, and so her friends are going to be as young, uh, unmarried uh, virgins, uh, friends of hers, uh, perhaps sisters, cousins, BFFs. And it was a special day and a thrill to belong to that special group as they would celebrate together. Now, there's something intended... There's, excuse me, there's nothing intended. Let me say that. There's nothing intended in the fact that they were virgins. We aren't supposed to draw any spiritual conclusions uh, from that. It's simply part of the wedding pattern. There were, there were ten bridesmaids, and the custom was the bridesmaids were virgins. And so that's, that's a context. Now, they take their torches in hand, not yet lit because they were just heading over to the bride's uh, home, and it says they went out to meet the bridegroom. So the ten virgins of this story are obviously the focal point of the parable. So who are these girls? Well, it's fairly obvious that they are from what Jesus says. They represent professed Christians. I say professed on purpose. They are those who claim to belong to Christ. Some do, some don't. They are those who have gathered with the assembly of Christian people to await the coming of the Lord. They, those who say they know Christ and they anticipate His coming. Those who say they believe and they know about the wedding and they know the time is near and they even say that they've made preparations. They even have their torch, but it's not lit. Their presence symbolizes their interest. We're talking about the foolish ones at this point. And their torch symbolizes their outward commitment to Christ. They show outward marks of watching for the coming of the bridegroom. They show outward marks of readiness. They show outward marks of a commitment to Christ. They're part of the believing community. They might even be members. They're gathered as bridesmaids, as it were, ready to receive, be received into His glorious marriage celebration. They profess to love Christ's appearing. They profess to hear the gospel and believe. They profess to be disciples waiting for the Son. And really when you see the ten of them, back to the bridesmaids here, you can't really tell them apart. You can't. 
I mean, they all have their wedding gowns. They're ready for the celebration. They're all chosen bridesmaids. They all, uh, they're, they're all friends of the bride. They all have their torches. And at first, they are indistinguishable. You can't tell them apart. But they are not alike. And this is the message of this parable. Verse 2 says, Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. Five were foolish, five were wise. You see, the one who looks at the heart... God, who looks at the heart, He knows. It may not be evident to us because no one wants to be caught being judgmental, right? But God knows, and God will judge. First Samuel says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And He looks into the heart of these ten bridesmaids, and five were franimas. Franimas, intelligent, wise, prudent. And five were moros. We've seen that word before. Moros, from which we get our word moron. <laughs> they were dull. They were stupid. They were foolish. So they are, they are very different. Not outwardly distinguishable, perhaps, but inwardly very different. Wise and foolish. One commentator by the name of William Arnault wrote this. There is not a more grand or more beautiful spectacle on earth than a great assembly reverently worshiping God together. No line visible to human eye divides into two parts the goodly company. Yet the goodly company is divided into two parts. The Lord reads our character and marks our place. The Lord knoweth them that are His and them also that are not His in every assembly of worshipers. And the differentiation here in this parable is preparedness. Being prepared. We see in verse, verses 3 and 4, here's, here's where their wisdom and foolishness manifests itself. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So the wise girl carried a little flask, a little bottle, a little container of, of oil uh, attached somehow or maybe in their hand. The foolish ones had nothing at all. They didn't take any oil. They just had that lamp. They're, they made no proper preparation. It was all on the outside. It was all external. They, they looked good, but they hadn't cared for that most necessary thing, and that is the oil that they could use to light the torch. They all made profession, but only five had the genuine oil of preparedness. Now, what does that oil represent here in this parable? It represents salvation. It's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's that necessary reality of saving grace that distinguishes people. There may be a large group of people, all who outwardly, apparently, honor Jesus Christ by their actions, but there will be different hearts, some prepared and some unprepared. The oil is like the garment in that uh, wedding uh, parable of the wedding back in Matthew 22. You'll remember the, um, the king calls a wedding for his son. Remember that? And, and he sees all the guests that had come and he finds a man without an actual wedding garment on. He too is unprepared and he tries to crash the kingdom as it were without a prepared heart and he's thrown out. And so the oil is a necessary grace without which... No one will see the Lord. It's true salvation. It's what theologians call, call imputed righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus that is given to us, imputed. 
when we believe, Jesus gives us that righteousness in order to make us right before God. It's only His righteousness that, that can do that. It is genuine holiness granted by faith in Jesus Christ as a transformed inward life. But some of them were like those who Paul writes about in 2 Timothy 3, 5, when he says, having a form of godliness. There are a lot of people out there that have a form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul says, have nothing to do with such people. The foolish virgins were outwardly attached. They were committed intellectually. They were committed socially. They were even committed religiously. But they had no light. They had no life. They had no ability to be conformed to the law of God. Their faith, in terms of James 2, was dead faith. And the purpose of the parable is to warn us not to be caught being so unprepared when Jesus comes. Folks, this is a repeated message in Scripture from Jesus Himself. You remember when He talked about the kingdom? Uh, we looked at that when uh, said that it would be like the wheat and tares growing in the same field. They looked alike. Don't go trying to tear out the tares because you might be pulling up the wheat. But wait until the coming of the Lord when He will make that distinction between the wheat and the weeds or the tares. And He talks about the soil that looks good. Remember the the, the farmer that threw out seed onto the soil. And the plant comes up and flourishes for a moment, but the roots have no depth. And it's strangled out by the roots of the weeds and found to be dead and non-fruit-bearing. So this is a common message And I think there's a point here that needs to be made, and that is that the church as a whole has many who are unsaved within their walls and unprepared for the coming of the Lord. It's interesting to me that in this particular parable of ten virgins, Jesus didn't say one of them didn't have oil. He said five of them. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not drawing the conclusion that 50% of people in every church are unsaved. That's, that's not the conclusion here. I do believe, however, that there are a lot of churches that have a lot of people who have never made a true decision for Christ. And whether they meet the Lord in His second coming or they meet the Lord in death, they will meet Him. And at that moment, they will be unprepared even though they've been religious, even though they've been involved with Christian people, even though they've, they've had nice feelings perhaps about Christ, they are self-deceived into thinking, all is well, I'm good enough, I, I, I'll make it. It's not a popular message today. No one wants to upset people. No one wants anyone to feel badly about themselves. The norm today has become to be inclusive. Just accept everybody. God will accept everybody. I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody's okay. Whatever you believe is right because you believe it. It's your what? It's your truth. So it's okay. What a shock those people are going to have the day they meet Jesus. But Lord, I went to church every Sunday. They'll hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And that brings us here in our passage to the bridegroom. It's fairly clear that the bridegroom is pointing to Jesus because this is, after all, about the second coming of Christ, coming for his people, Israel. So what do we know? Well, in verse 5 we read, The bridegroom was a long time in coming, 
And they, the bridesmaids, all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the story that Jesus is telling, the bridegroom doesn't come when they expect him. It's getting later and later and later and later, and they doze off and go to sleep. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleep. Okay, don't misunderstand this parable saying that you should never sleep and there's sin in sleeping. Uh, sin is wonderful. I love sin. Is that, is that what I said? Sleep is wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Whoa. Boy, I'll be out of here in no time. Sleep is wonderful. Uh, God created that for us. Nothing wrong with that, but there is something wrong if you're not prepared for what's going to wake you up from that sleep. And that's the issue here in this parable. Sleeping is not condemned. The wise were asleep just like the foolish. They all fell asleep. Jesus is indicating that while we are waiting with expectation, while we're waiting with anticipation, while we are waiting, while we are, being, while we are prepared, being alert, being faithful, watching, we are, we are to go about doing the Master's business, being obedient to Him, carrying out what He has asked us to. So five of the, five of the bridesmaids, fell asleep, bridesmaids fell asleep in peace secure in the knowledge that they were ready. Interestingly, I believe the other five also fell asleep in relative peace, also secure in their truth that they were ready and they were prepared. But their false sense of security let them sleep through, the, uh, through their day of opportunity. And that, folks, is the tragedy. Verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! At midnight? Really? Strange time to start a wedding celebration. No wonder the bridesmaids had, uh, t- got tired and fell asleep. After all, who starts a wedding in the middle of the night? But the point Jesus wants to make here is simply that it's going to be at an unexpected time. The wait was long. Now it's midnight when no one expects the wedding to start. That's exactly when he comes. But the point Jesus wants to make here is simply that it's going to be unexpected. That's what Jesus just said in chapter 24, that he would come like what? A thief in the night. The world somehow has been lulled into complacency. Folks, the church has been lulled into complacency. Please don't allow that to happen here. Jesus is going to come at an unexpected moment, even after all the signs. Scripture says, when you see the signs beginning, look up for your redemption draweth near. I mean, the bridesmaid knew the wedding was near. They could read the signs. They all probably expected the wedding to start early in the evening. So the five foolish bridesmaids may have assumed that there was a dollar general right around the corner. And they could run over and and grab a little bit of oil when they heard the call for for the bridegroom. Then they probably got all caught up in the laughing and the excitement, having all the fun with the other bridesmaids and, and, and the bride, and probably for, forgot all about the fact that they didn't have any oil with them. Then they got tired. Life was good, right? They're having fun. They all fell asleep. Then at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's a bridegroom. Come out to meet him. That was the moment they were all waiting for. 
the anticipation. So even though it's late, it's going to go on for seven days anyway, right? So who really cares how late it is? I mean, there are a lot of cultures that the time issue is not a big deal. Even Ivory Coast, where we were, it was very common for a bride to be an hour to an hour and a half late to her own wedding at the church. No biggie. Used to drive us crazy. In our culture, that wouldn't go over very well. Boy, that that wedding would be canceled, boy, and there would be issues going on. So the bride and all the bridesmaids hear the call and wake up, and they're all excited, and the groom and his grooms in, probably ten of them as well, are, are on their way to get the bride and the, uh, and the ten bridesmaids along with, with their lamps and, and their, or their torches. They're ready to light them and, and march through and celebrate all the way through town on the way to the home that he's prepared for her. Now just so we don't forget, what are we talking about here? The second coming of Christ. The very moment of the second coming. Verse 7 says, Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. They got their claws all stuck in the right place, all all put in that little uh, wire mesh there neatly, um, poured oil on it and uh, soaked it all through so that when they lit it, it, the the flames would burn the oil and the the cloth would still be there. And uh, they flamed up nice and bright in the night. At least five of them did. The other five all of a sudden realized Oh my goodness, we got a problem. When they lit their lamp, they, they were nice and bright for a moment too. Because there may have been some residual oil perhaps from the last time those lamps were used and the last time that old cloth was used. But then the, the little bit of oil that was on them burned out and then it started burning up the cloth that was uh, there. It's midnight now. Dollar General's closed. Where are they going to get the oil? We have no idea what their plans were, if they had any. Scripture doesn't tell us. It's not the point. They certainly didn't do what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's pointed towards us. All of a sudden, in the presence of the bridegroom, they find that they are lacking. They're not prepared. They have not received God's grace, the salvation through that grace. It wasn't important enough for them at the time to prepare. So verse 8, the foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. One commentator explains this verse this way, if the call to the judgment seat of God came to you, whether in death or the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it came to you when you were not ready and you were not prepared, All the saints in heaven and all the people on earth could stand weeping in your behalf, but could never save you. Never. You see, he says, salvation is non-transferable. That's the point, he says. It's not to interject into this that the wise were selfish. That's not the point. The parable is not intending to teach selfishness. It is intending to teach the non-transferable nature of salvation. See, the saved can't save the lost. Give us your oil as a request that no one can answer. Every person must have their own salvation. Every person must make their own life right before God by believing in Jesus Christ. That's a personal decision for every single person. 
You can't be born into a Christian, or you can't be born a Christian because you were born into a Christian home. Your parents are Christian. We all go to church all the time. You can't assume everything's going to be okay because you attend church most of the time. No one can share their oil with you. So in verse 9, the wise ones, the wise ones answer, No, they reply, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. The idea here is simply to teach that you've got to get your own. The buying here does not assume that you can buy salvation. That's that's not the point. Let's make that very clear. Or the, the fact that salvation is not a free gift from God. It is. Jesus paid the price for our salvation. Scripture says that we deserve death, but Jesus died on the cross for us. Actually, in a sense, we do pay a price. We, we pay the price of giving up our whole self, don't we? Like the man who sold everything he had to buy the treasure hidden in the field, and the man who sold everything he had to buy the pearl of great price. Or in Isaiah, it says in chapter 55, 1, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money. You can't buy anything with money. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. It's an invitation. Well, there's plenty of oil available, but not at midnight, and not right at the moment when the bridegroom arrived. And the implication here is that no one is allowed into that festival, into that celebration without a lit torch. It was kind of like the symbol that you were a part of the wedding party and there was no way in without it, and they didn't have it. Folks, this has got to be the most sobering Fearful teaching the Bible gives that you don't hear much about. And Jesus gave it over and over and over again. There are crowds of people in the church today who are unprepared to face God. And they are deceived about that. And in the moment when they face the reality of their unpreparedness, it will be in that moment too late. Remember Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug deep, uh, down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation on the sand. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. It's the same thing. There are people who have built their religious house on sand. They have no foundation. That necessary grace isn't there. The reality of the imputed righteousness, the righteousness that Christ gives isn't there. The holiness of God that it, that's alive in us isn't there. That transformed heart and character isn't there. Salvation isn't there no matter what it appears like on the outside. Well, they may enjoy singing about Jesus. They may like belonging to a community of believing people. After all, we, we are nice people, right? But they themselves are not prepared. And in that moment, when they are told to go and get their own oil, it says in verse 10, but while they were on their way to buy the oil, apparently there was some place that was open all night, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, 
and the door was shut. And folks, that is the warning. That is the warning here in this parable. What a horrible, horrible moment. I can't imagine the feeling of sheer terror that would overwhelm you when you meet God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you're not ready. The door was shut, just like the days of Noah, right? Just like in the days of Noah. There was no hope. There was no longer any acceptance or entrance. Folks, the door is open now. The door is open now, but it will be shut. And some will not be ready. And it's in that moment when people will wake up to the fact that they are not prepared and they'll be absolutely shocked standing there and say, as it says in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Listen to the same warning in a different setting in Luke chapter 13. It says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, yeah, but we we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets, streets. And he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. So we wrap up this morning. Look at verses 11 and 12. The five foolish bridesmaids are gone looking for oil. The marriage begins, the marriage celebration. And he says, later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they replied, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. It's incomprehensible. Put yourself in their place. There's no second chance. Absolutely terrifying. You see, the only sure way to be ready on the unexpected day is to be ready every day. To be ready every day. And I guess that's the question of the day today, isn't it? Are you ready? Are you ready? If the bridegroom arrived today, if Jesus came back today, are you ready? Once again, he says, for the fifth time, therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Be prepared, be alert, be watchful, watchful, be faithful, because we don't know when Jesus is going to return. You see, to be a little late is to be late forever. We hear it again in Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and anxieties of life, and that that day will come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Don't be caught unawares. Don't be caught unprepared. That's the message of the parable. 
Paul said there again in Psalm in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Father, this morning, this is a tough parable. It's a parable of warning. And Father, you, as you look down, you, you can see beyond the exterior of each one of us that are in the sanctuary, of each one that is listening via Facebook. And you are looking into the heart. Father, if there is a heart unprepared, if there is one that has not made that decision to give up self and give their life to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would bring that conviction. Maybe it's someone that's been in the church for years and years and years, assuming that they're, they're fine. But, Father, if they're not fine in your eyes, tell them. Father, for those of us who have made that decision, we're looking forward to be able to walk into that celebration and celebrate with you. For all of eternity. What a joy that's going to be. In Jesus' name, amen.